great to be together. Uh, let me pray as we consider these things. Father, we, we are just so grateful for what you have done for us and pray please this morning that you might help us grasp a little more of what you've done, that we might appreciate your love for us, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've, we've chosen a passage this morning uh, that connects two things that I think are not often connected uh, with Christianity. One is the person of Jesus, his death, and the good life. And the good life. Did you notice in that reading that Celeste gave us that John chapter 10, Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 11 that I am the good shepherd. Uh, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. He promises the good life in the, this very verse. Uh, and in this very verse, he connects it to verse, verse uh, 11. If you've got your sheet, you'll see it there as well. Good to follow on. You'll see there in verse 11 that he connects it to his death, to his death on a gruesome cross. And the life that he's coming to offer isn't just a contained life, it's the richest possible life. That's the way lang the language of life is used by Jesus. It's a life that's not even contained to this life, but a life that will go on forever. He comes to give us life in the richest possible way. That's a promise, I want to suggest, that translates powerfully into our cultural context, doesn't it? Who doesn't want the good life? We're a culture that's chasing after the good life. In fact, the way to actually test this for yourself is, if you've got kids, what is it you hope for your kids? You've got hope for your kids, you long for your kids for something. What is it you hope for them? You hope for them to be just at least, just to have a happy life, just to be content, to have a good life. It's a very modest ambition, isn't it? That's all I want. We want the good life for ourselves. We don't need to be rich, we don't need to be successful. We don't need to be massively popular. We just, we just want it. We're the central coast. We've got modest ambitions, right? We just want to be happy. We just want to have a good life, a simple life. Now, I'm going to offer this claim in line with Jesus' words. You will never find the good life except that you find it in Jesus. You will never find the good life. Chase though you will, except that you find it in Jesus. Now, I think that's a crazy claim to make. It's a counterintuitive claim. It's a claim that goes against every instinct. Uh, you know, I think most people in today's world, uh, they think of coming to Jesus, coming to the Christian faith, becoming a Christian is the very last place you go to if you wanted the good life. Because to follow Jesus, to become a Christian, to come under his rule is to constrain you, it's to oppress you, it's to make you narrow and bigoted. It's very opposite, the very opposite of the good life. I mean, look at us here. This is the first sunny day in, what, six years or something. I don't know. It's the first sunny days in months. And here we are in this building doing church. Do you know, I used to drive past cricket players. I'm, I'm sorry to have a go at cricket players again, but, but I used to drive past on Saturday mornings early. I'd go down for a surf and I'd drive past all these blokes standing in a cricket field. I'd come back after a 35-degree day, having had a great time at the beach, drive past them, and they'd still be there. And I'd think, thank God my parents never got me into cricket. <laughs> and I think lots of people drive past here and they go, wow, we're going to the beach. Look at those people. The good life with Jesus and the Christian faith. I want to say it again. The good life will never be found. You will never find it unless you find it in Jesus, with Jesus, under the rule of Jesus. 
Now, that's an astonishing claim, but I want to suggest it, takes a, it requires a total rethink of life, of what's good, of where true good life is found. It takes a total rethink. I noticed the other week, um, I read the paper sometimes, I noticed the other week uh, a, um, a report on a Harvard University course that's being run by a professor. Uh, they have a happiness professor, of all things, in university. How is that? And she runs this course that is the most popular course in the university. Everyone comes to find a bit of happiness, which just tells you something, actually. 19-year-olds are searching for happiness. She was asked this question. I'm going to read it to you. So come up, she'll come up on the screen. Let's just have a quick look at who she is. Um, we all have... This is the interviewer. We all have more resources about how to be happy than humans have ever had. Yet so many of us still find it hard to figure out how to be happy. What is that? Says the interviewer. Here's the answer. This is the way I frame it a lot in a lot of the talks about happiness. Our minds lie to us. We have strong intuitions about the things that will make us happy and we use those intuitions to go after this and that stuff. Whether it's more money or change circumstances or buying a new iPhone. But the science shows a lot of those intuitions are deeply misguided. Wow. That's why we get it wrong. I know this stuff, but my instincts are totally wrong, she says. Now, that caught my eye. There's a professor in a secular university, well, now secular university, telling us that we get our, our intuitions won't help us with the good life. And I think she's totally right. The offer of the good life, it will only be found after you start questioning your intuition. It'll only be found as you begin to become cynical about your own instincts and intuition. Allowing the possibility that everything you've thought about the good life might just be wrong. That the path you're pursuing might actually not be the path that will get you the good life. Until you come to that place, you won't ever find the good life. And here's the thing. Our instincts have been wrong. Our intuitions have um, objectively been seen to be wrong. Let me show you some ads down through history. Have you seen these things? Let me look. Viceroy's filter the smoke. As your dentist recommends. (laughs) Right or wrong? Well, we'll keep going. For a better start in life, start cola early. How soon is too soon? (laughs) The kids will love you. You've been doing it all wrong. Now, these are old, old ads. We laugh at them, but look at the next one. (laughs) What's wrong with that picture? I think it's her posture. I think it's the way she's standing. Look at the next one. This is my favourite. How could that ever go wrong, right? <laughs> Accidental discharge, impossible. It's never too soon to start your kids with guns. Now, we, we, we laugh, but we're disturbed. Part of us is disturbed by those things. These are ads back in the 1920s. Now, there's some possibility that a couple of them might have been doctored up. Someone suggested that might be the case. But nonetheless, the Marlboro ads have all been doing the same thing. And the point is this, they're all selling the good life. They're all the smile. The happiness. If you want to find the good life, well, here's, here's the thing that will bring it along with you. It's never too soon to start. They're promising the good life, but they were all wrong. 
Yes? They couldn't deliver on what they promised. They were badly wrong. But here's the thing. Back then, we didn't see it. Back then, people like us didn't see they were wrong. That observation is a massively important one to take hold of, to bring humility to this whole exercise. Uh, you know, we're moderns, we keep imagining ourselves that if we'd been back there, we would have seen it, we would have picked it up, we would have understood. No, um, uh, it, more challenging still is, what are, we, what are we getting wrong today? We are bombarded with advice and ads, and our instinct about the good life is running us down a certain path. But how much of what we think will give us the good life, the ads and so on, that we'll find in 20 years' time, looking back, we laugh at, we're embarrassed by, we think how crazy it was. How much of that will we have got wrong? At least certainly in eternity, we will look back and see with clear vision what we so profoundly missed. The fact is we are bombarded with promises about how to gain the good life, where it's found. You just take a week of TV... The movies we watch, the, the news, the promotions, the ads, the message. I mean, I, I just have a quick list. What, what's the messages that we hear? The key to the good life, the key to the good life. I mean, the, the very obvious one is follow your heart. Follow your heart. The other one is be free of constraint. Don't let anyone judge you. You go your path, you be you. That'll bring the good life. That'll finally bring society into its greatest new freedom. Uh, uh, sexuality and so on. sleep together sleeping together doesn't need marriage to be around it it's hard it's just like back rubs it's a massage it's there's no consequences no one waits it's great that they don't wait they can just enjoy that's the message we're told make your own way all of these messages we hear but in the past we got these things wrong and now years later we look back embarrassed at those people who missed it Bring some humility to this whole exercise means that how much in 30, 40, 50 years' time will we look back and say, what were we thinking? How did we get it so wrong? History tells us to take care. What path are you on thinking you'll find the good life? What are the choices and directions you're making that you think is the way to find the good life? What are they? Recognise them. Notice again, Jesus says... It's in him. He is the key. And he does more than that. He lays out a character test, actually. And he lays out a character test. I'm going to show you this in a moment. He lays out a character test because he knows that we'll struggle to believe him, that he's the one who has the good life for us. He knows that we'll struggle to think, to imagine that coming in under his lordship and being reconciled to him will bring us the good life. Surely not. And so he does a character test for us. He, he, wants to deliver, he wants to deliver the good life, but he knows that you're not going to find it easy to trust him in this. So he does a compare and contrast using the image of a shepherd. Now, you would have heard Celeste talk about the shepherd language there. Jesus does it all the way through this chapter. He picks up the idea of a shepherd. Now, the shepherd image is a dead obvious one, as long as you're not Australian. Do, do you know, when we think of shepherds, what do you think of? A bloke on a dirt bike with dogs racing behind a massive herd of sheep, yeah, flock, herd, whatever they are, that crowd of animals and chasing them all, that's what you think of when you think of a shepherd. But what you think of in the first century is a very different thing. A shepherd in the first century very often only had a small flock, not always, they often had big ones too, but they often had small flocks and they would walk with their sheep, they would lead in front of their sheep, 
they would actually sometimes give them names. They would know their sheep. The sheep would know them. At night, they would sleep amongst them to protect them. It's a favourite image that was used in the ancient Near East for leaders of political, uh, of religious environments. Leaders were often called shepherds. To say that they didn't just lead the people, but they led them like a shepherd leads their sheep, with care, with concern for them, to feed, protect, guard. It was a favourite image in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, God talks about the shepherds and he talks there about the shepherds of Israel failing his people. Jesus picks up this image and he compares his own leadership, he contrasts it with the shepherds who have come before him. And he says to us that all who have come before him were robbers and thieves. They destroyed the sheep, they hurt and harmed the sheep, they didn't truly care for the sheep. And the evidence that they didn't truly care for the sheep was that when danger came, they ran. When the wolf comes, he says, they ran away. Because they were doing it for what they get out of it, not for the concern of the sheep. And so if there's any threat to themselves, they're gone. How many leaders have you seen do that in this world? Isn't that why the Ukrainian leader stands out for us? Who can pronounce his name? But the Ukrainian leader is a standout, isn't he? Because when war came and he was threatened with his very life, he could have taken the escape route and led from another country. But he did what? He stayed. Wow. That is unusual in our day and age. And the point that Jesus is making here is that um, there are leaders that you can trust, there's leaders that you can't trust. The kind of leaders that you can trust are the ones who will stay, who will invest themselves for you, who won't actually be about themselves in the leadership activity. You know, let me apply this very particularly, and I know this is a very particular thing, but in our day and age we've got 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, particularly now growing up, with great anxiety about themselves, as has always happened, actually. go through hormonal things. It's a massively difficult personal time for uh, young teenagers. But we've now got teenagers growing up in a context where there's a whole massive online community and a peer group that you can create online that's telling our our teenagers that that they're the voice they should trust. That in their ranks, they're the voice that has the answer. They're the ones that love them and affirm them and are for them. And your parents, don't listen to them. They're not safe. Have you heard this kind of thing that's been going around? Well, friends, I think, pick up this idea that when that young child needs to go to hospital, where will the online community be then? Who will be by the bedside all night? Who will take them to all the appointments that they need to be taken to? Who will will lose themselves for the sake of caring for them? That's where you work out who to trust. The one who will be there for me through thick and thin, trust them. The online community will disappear, they'll run. Jesus says all the others are hired help. When a risk comes to their life, they're gone. Jesus here is putting forward a character test. He's saying, I'm making a claim to give you the life, good life. I know you won't believe me, but trust me. And especially so because delivering the good life is not just about this life, it's about the life to come. Yes, the good life is a life that fills up this life today, but the life that Jesus is talking about, the good life that he's talking about, runs into eternity beyond the grave. Jesus says, I've come to actually save you, to give you life forever. And given that, it truly matters to find out who can deliver. 
you need to find someone that you can trust who can really deliver. I mean, is it even possible to have life beyond the grave? There's so much at stake. And yet so many voices are telling us confidently about the end. So many people in our community are telling us that there's nothing beyond. It just ends when you die. Don't worry. Just be happy. Enjoy. There's nothing that comes. There's no judgment. But here's the thing. None of those who speak with that confidence are there to pick up the pieces when it goes wrong. They have no vested interest in actually making sure they give you the right advice. They don't care what happens to you. So much is at stake. Life, life to the full, life that's actually to the full into the life to come, forever beyond the grave. This is not just about your best years here and now, says Jesus. This is about forever. There's so much at stake. Jesus actually says, what good is it to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? This, Jesus says, is about your soul. Who can give your soul the life it needs to have? Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it to the full forever into the future. Trust me. I'm the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd. Now, how do you know that he's the good shepherd? Well, verse 11, because I lay down my life for my sheep. I don't run. How do you know that you can trust this Jesus? Because of the first Good Friday, Easter. When Jesus here is talking about laying down a life for his sheep, it's a powerful metaphor. It's a powerful metaphor, actually, that, and a radical metaphor that helps us see the, the magnitude of the love the shepherd has. You think with me about this. A shepherd dying for their sheep? Really? Is a human life worth the life of a sheep? Not on my accounting. I mean, I might fight for a sheep and try and protect it, but when push comes to shove, I'm not dying for it. It's a crazy image that Jesus here uses. He speaks of a shepherd that is prepared to die for sheep. Now, stick with that little metaphorical world for a moment. What is going on for Jesus in this expression? I want to suggest to you it's this. He is talking about a shepherd who is so deeply invested in his sheep, in the most radical, crazy way imaginable, a shepherd who is so deeply invested in his sheep, that they matter so much to him, he would give up his life even for them. And this is a deep, deep radical metaphor because we are the sheep, which is not very flattering. If you've ever worked with sheep, and my father was a wool appraiser. He worked with sheep and I've got... If you've ever worked with sheep, they are very dumb. Do, do, you know, I've, I've heard it said that um, every other animal... In the, in the animal kingdom, if you let them go, become wild. You know, dogs, you let them go, they go feral and become wild. Cats, you let them go, they become feral, become wild. You let a sheep go, what does it become? Food for every other wild animal. <laughs> it just wants to go home, it just stands still, it doesn't know what to do, it just grows wool, it gets thicker and thicker and can't walk after a while. Sheep are that kind of animal. And what's being said here is that we're the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. Totally so much above us. So other God. The God-man. The Son of God. The high and lofty one. The high, the great I am. And he says, 
He lays down his life for his sheep, for us. He speaks to the fact of something that's so extraordinary. He is so deeply invested in the lives of mere humans, you. And it's a glorious truth that we've, what we've spoken about all morning. It's a wonder that he, the chief great shepherd, God amongst us, knows you by name. Just capture the astonishing nature of that. We're so used to thinking great thoughts about ourselves and so we imagine that the love of God he has for us is, is a smallish thing. It's, my parents have great love for me too. No, no, no. We're the sheep. And the God of the universe lays down his life for us. No one has loved you like that. The Father has loved his world by giving his only son to us. No one has proved he is worth your trust like that. When Jesus talks about laying down his life for the sheep, it's not just any death he's talking about either. You'll notice this, he lays down his life for his sheep, for his sheep. He's not just dying while the sheep watch on, puzzled. He's, he's dying for them because they're in danger. He's dying to rescue them, to save them because they're in danger. What's the danger? What's our danger? Well, it's the foolishness of humanity who have listened to every voice except the one we should about the good life. We've listened to every voice and instinct and intuition rather than the one we ought to find out what the truly good life is. We've run down paths of foolishness and craziness. We've walked away from our God. The danger we're in, therefore, is the judgment of God, the holy, righteous judgment of God. We've told ourselves that the essence of the good life is living for ourselves, putting ourselves at the centre and pushing God out. We were made to live for him as the best life imaginable. The greatest gift that God could give us is to have us be able to live for him. But we told ourselves in our pride and foolishness that we didn't need him, that we could live for ourselves and that would give us everything we longed for. And all it's done is destroy us. It's taken from us. It's set ourselves against God. It's set ourselves against the infinite, majestic glory of the Holy One. And so brought death into our world and judgment eternally. And Jesus, the Good Shepherd, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, comes back to us to bring us life as the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Firstly, just to show us how he is for us. That's what this passage is about. I'm the one you can trust because I don't run. I give my life for you. I'm not calling you to myself because I'm driven by selfish needs and what I, I'm calling you to myself for your good because I love you. But second, the laying down of his life is an actual rescue that gives us life and ends death. Now, there's so much here, but let me just offer a story. I picked up a very old story um, that I think captures some of this. Uh, long before the Soviet Union, back in the day when there were czars over Russia, a young Russian officer had been stealing money from his troop. And he realised that he was about to be found out, caught, punished, killed. 
and he decided to kill himself before all was discovered. And so the night that he planned to do this, he got the gun, he got the books in front of him, he was going through them and he had a bottle of whiskey and he got himself drunk and he, to make up the courage to do it to himself, getting himself ready. But he found in the end he'd drunk so much that he passed out on the desk over his books. The Tsar, the emperor of Russia, the ruler of Russia came in, saw the scene, the young man, the books, worked out what was going on worked out that he'd stolen, worked out the consequences, looked through them, saw where he was heading and wrote a note, put it in an envelope with a seal, his seal, personal seal, so that in the morning when the young man woke and saw the note, he read these words, I've personally repaid all your debt. Bizarre. Now what does that do for you? In that moment the young man realised the very person who he'd offended against had seen everything that he'd done, had gone through all of his books and seen all the horrors and the shame and yet still paid for him, made it right. He had seen the fullness of his crime and not only not judged him for it, but made things right for him so that he is now, that Russian young Russian officer is now free. The cross... Easter, Good Friday, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the ruler of the universe came as one who knows everything about you. He knows his sheep. He knows every dark shadow. He knows every hidden thing. He knows every shame that you've ever had. He knows your foolishness and your pride and your selfishness. He knows all of these things. He knows how you've listened to the wrong advice and the wrong voices, followed your intuitions and gone down paths that have destroyed you. He knows, he knows you've dismissed him again and again. He's seen that secret sin, the thing that you don't want anyone. He's seen it all. He's seen the books. And he comes as the good shepherd. He comes not to run, but to actually go forward towards death intentionally, verse 17 and 18. No one takes this from me. Ah. Oh, lay it down for you deliberately he comes as the good shepherd to lay down his life that you might have life to the full found nowhere else except in him let me finish with four things the good life won't be found where we're being told it'll be found the influences that are on us, the instincts that we have, the voices that we hear, they're not on track. They've never been on track. The evidence is very clear. And in the end, whatever good life you pursue, death undoes it all. Stop being cynical about the Bible and start being cynical about every other voice you hear. Because history demonstrates how wrong it's been again and again and again. Celebrities, advertising, Hollywood, don't. Your own gut instincts, your Facebook friends. The good life won't be found where we're being told it'll be found. Second, Jesus is the good shepherd. He has proven he is for you. He paid the ultimate price because he's so for you. He knows you and he still paid. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is seen into your heart and still laid down his life for you. No one has loved you like this great one has loved you. You have not been loved by anyone like this one has loved you. Trust. Who are you going to trust for the good life? There is no one worthy of your trust like Jesus is worthy. He's not using you. He has died for you, he's so for you. He's not going to walk away from you. And come Sunday, he demonstrates how profoundly true his goodness is in rising from the grave. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for you. Third, come to him. Come to him. You might not have been in church for a long time. You might be in a long way away. You might be here today sort of sticking your head back in, wondering about, thinking about, come back. Jesus is the good shepherd. Your intuitions won't get you in the right path. Death will undo it all. Jesus has laid down his life here as the good shepherd. You can trust him. He brings life and life to the full that you won't feel in its fullness yet. But it's coming. Trust him. Come back. Stop being the fool, chasing every other voice. He has the words of eternal life. Fourth, live trusting him. Live your life trusting him and his thoughts on where the good life is found. Actively put away the other voices. Actively embrace Jesus' voice. The good life is only found in coming under his lordship, under his rule, trusting him as the one who paid for you, who promises the good life and can deliver. Learn from him. Take on his yoke. He is gentle and humble and good for your soul. Let me encourage you too that you won't be the only one pursuing this path. Many others have gone this path before us. And have given testimony to the beauty of what Jesus has done in their life. And I want to show you some of this now. We've got a little package to show you some of the testimonies of people just sitting here amongst us as they go through their life. Let's see if we can watch this now. So I used to think that life was all about me and the plans that I had for myself and trying to be in control of everything. Chasing my dreams and my desires. I just think that life for Jesus uh, was about servicing mine and my family's needs. Um, just through hard works and ticking boxes. Life was about maintaining my happiness and my family's. I put a lot of pressure on myself to achieve things, um, look after my family, it was all me. But since becoming a Christian, I can see that all that is just worthless compared to the life of Christ. Jesus is in control, that he has plans for me that are far better than I could have had for myself. But now that I know Jesus, I know that he's got my back. He's in control, God's sovereign, and that's relieved me like, a lot of the anxiety and the pressure that I used to feel. Jesus in our lives, um, you know, he provides everything that we need, and I don't need to go chasing for that anymore. Now I know that true happiness only comes through knowing Jesus, and that's given me the hope and courage to face all life's ups and downs. True life only comes through Jesus. And that's given me the courage to face all life's ups and downs. Isn't that beautiful? 
Come back. Come to him. See Good Friday for what it is. An act that actually rescued us and an act that, an act that shows us how much you can trust this Jesus.